So what we're doing here is going through John, the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John and we're up to chapter 4. I'm not quite sure how far we'll get through, but we'll, we'll have a go. And hopefully we get to verse 42 today. And this is um, Christ's witnesses to the woman at the well, the, um, the Samaritan woman. So, <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you for your mercy. And I thank you that you are seeking us, Lord. When we are lost, you are seeking us. And um, all the people who are still lost, you're seeking them. And you want to use us as your hands and your feet to reach those people uh, for your kingdom so they don't have to go to hell, but they can spend eternity with you. Lord, help us to realize that we are ambassadors, that we have been called for this very, very important task. Lord, we are a part of the kingdom of God, and we have, Lord, we're soldiers in your army. Help us to be effective and to do what you called us to do, to be witnesses for you in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see Jesus give an example of um, how to witness to someone here, and we'll learn other stuff along the way. John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied or tired from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon, twelve o'clock. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
you have well said. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I believe that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not laboured. Others have laboured, and you have entered into their labours. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. So that's the, the story, that's the context. 
So we're just going to go verse by verse through that now. So verses 1 and 2. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. So Jesus may have baptized his disciples because the word but there could be except. So though Jesus himself did not baptize except his disciples. But overall, it was the disciples doing the baptizing. But whatever the case is, people were responding to Jesus' ministry. So Jesus was there nearby to where John was. John the Baptist was baptizing too. And people were coming to Jesus. And we learned last week that more people were coming to Jesus than there were to John. And John said, that's fine. That's My ministry is fulfilled. I'm pointing people to Jesus. I'm not disappointed. They're not coming to me. Now, what is baptism? Jesus is affirming water baptism as a demonstration of repentance and preparation for the work of sanctification. So I'm going to put Romans 6, 1 to 11 on the whiteboard here. And this gives us a, uh, a very good and clear description of what baptism means from a spiritual perspective and a practical perspective. So Romans 6, 1 to 11, it says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? So there's this theme of dying and living, of, of, of regeneration or resurrection. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? So this is what baptism is reminding us of. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So we go under the water, and it's a picture of the old life dying, and we can rise up out of the water. It's a picture of the resurrection, the new life. <clears throat> it goes on. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. That's what baptism represents. You go under the water, the old life is gone and dead. We're free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him and therefore over us. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. And this is the key verse. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. So that's what baptism represents, dead to the power of sin, alive to God through Jesus. And that's um, the idea of sanctification, growing more and more into Christ's image. And you can go through the New Testament and you, and you can see that um, Acts, especially the book of Acts, baptism is a, a natural and logical and um, Jesus and the apostles teach that it should happen once you've been converted, water baptism, after a person has been saved. Uh, verse 3, 
he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. So, there's this big thing going on between the Pharisees and Jesus and John the Baptist. So, the Pharisees don't like John the Baptist because he's teaching them uh, people to repent and to, to turn to God. And the Pharisees want them to remain in their, um, their false religion, their legalism. And Jesus, uh, and the Pharisees are starting to recognize that Jesus is more of a threat than John the Baptist, and Jesus doesn't want to have any confrontation here. So Jesus says, let's go. It's not time for us to have this confrontation. And he used his common sense to avoid danger. There's other times when Jesus said, you know what? It's time to go. And, and the disciples said, we'll go with you even if we die. <laughs> but this time Jesus said, it's not time for that. We need to get out of here. Verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. So you've got Israel, and it's divided into three regions. still kind of is today. You've got um, Galilee in the north with um, lake, the Galilee Lake there, Tiberias Lake. Uh, Samaria, or what we call the West Bank now in the middle, and in the south you've got um, Judea. So when a Jew wanted to go from Judea in the south right up to Galilee, instead of going through Samaria, where the Samaritans lived, they'd go right around. Okay, they'd actually, I think, cross the Jordan River. It says, um, I read somewhere, they would go through Perea on the other side of the Jordan River. They'd actually cross the river to avoid this section of land where these Samaritans live. The, to the Jew, this, the word Samaritan was a curse word, it was a swear word. That's how much these people hated each other. So. Why was it like this? Well, you have to go back a bit. We I mean, won't go back now, but uh, you'll read it in the Old Testament. In 722, 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded and they took most of the ten tribes captive and took them back to Assyria. But other people, and they left the very poor people, and other people came in other Syrians and people, other nations, and they intermarried. And so you had this mixed race, if you can call that, a mixed ethnicity. And they also mixed their religion. So they, they held on to the, the Pentateuch, the um, first five books of the Bible, but they changed the stories. So, for example, the Garden of Eden, where do you think they said the Garden of Eden was? On Mount Gerizim. That's where they are now, okay? Um, Noah's Ark landed on Mount Gerizim. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Gerizim. So that's how they kind of changed everything to, to you know, they took the, the first five books of the Bible and then added the other religions to it and made this kind of um, false religion. As a result, they were barred from the temple. They were not allowed to go into the temple. So if you're a Samaritan, you were not allowed in the temple. You were hated. They were considered like half-breeds. And so the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And that's where, that's what this lady is talking about. As Jesus headed north to Galilee, he said, I'm going straight through Samaria. Why? because there was a divine appointment waiting for him there. He said, but he needed to go through Samaria. 
God had a purpose for him to go through and meet these people. Now, this is this story, as we've just read, is a classic illustration of how to witness and share our faith. And in John chapter 3, there's Jesus sharing with Nicodemus. I just want to go through some contrasts between these two encounters. In John chapter 3, Jesus talks to a religious man named Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, he talks to an immoral woman who we don't know who her name is. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus is a calm contemplator. He talks reasonably. In John 4, the woman comes across as a fiery debater, someone who's quite lively. In John chapter 3, Jesus speaks with Nicodemus in the cool of the night, at night time. In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks with a woman in the heat of the day. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus starts the conversation. And in John chapter 4, Jesus starts the conversation. So personal evangelism is is not just one way. There's different ways of starting conversations, different ways of sharing. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's wall was well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So about noontime. Now in that country, it's hot. Okay, It's the middle of the day. It's hot. The sun's beating down on you. And uh, and this well is still there. Have you guys been to Israel? Seen Jacob's well? Yeah. So it's about 150 feet deep. It's a little bit deep to reach down and grab yourself a cup of water. Now, Sychar is the same as ancient Shechem, which and it's the capital city of the Samaritans. Now, a few a bit of history about this is place um, Sychar or Shechem. This is where Abraham first came when he arrived in the land of Canaan when he came from Ur the Chaldees. It's the first time God or it's the first, where God first appeared to Abram in Canaan and renewed the promise of giving the land to him and his descendants. It's also the place where Abram built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. And this is where Jacob came safely, came home safely when he returned with his wives and children from when he lived with Laban. And that's all in Genesis. And continuing through Genesis, this is where Jacob brought a piece of land from Hamor for a hundred pieces of silver. Jacob also builds an altar here and calls it El Elohi Israel. And that's why it's called Jacob's Well, because of that. Uh, it's also the place where Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, was raped and the sons of Jacob killed all the men in retaliation. This is where the bones of Joseph were buried. Remember how he was in Egypt and they brought him out of Egypt to uh, back to the Promised Land and they buried him there. And this is also where Joshua made a covenant with Israel to renew their commitment to the Lord. Remember his fa- those famous words, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's where that happened too. So this is a fairly important place in the, in the Scriptures. And that's why the Samaritans took pride in this place and said, This is a special place. We're going to make our home here. This is our temple. So verse 6, Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey. 
does it feel strange that Jesus got tired? I thought he was God. Should Jesus get tired? So, the verses from Hebrews, and it talks about how Jesus is fully human, as well as being fully God, of course. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy, that's us, have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. That's us. He calls us his brothers and sisters. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, human. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So that's why he had to come as a human being. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. So as we get tired, he gets tired. As we are tempted, he is tempted. But he doesn't sin. His brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So when we're tired, Jesus understands. He knows what we're going through. Sometimes you feel run down, you feel tired, but guess what? That's the most likely time when God's going to use you because when you're weak, then you are strong. Like this verse, 2 Corinthians 12.10. This is Paul talking. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right. Continuing in verse 6. Uh, he sat on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's it's noontime, it's it's middle of the day, it's hot. He sits on the edge of the well, and here's his woman. Now, why is the woman coming at noontime? Because the other women came in the morning or at night. Well, she's some kind of outcast. We don't know the, the full reason. Well, we get a good hint later on. Uh, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Wow. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So just think about this, Jesus sending his disciples into the city to buy food. Now, didn't he feed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes? He fed another 4,000 just after that. Why couldn't he just make some food for his disciples? Well, if you go through the Gospels, you'll never ever see Jesus perform a miracle just to meet his own needs. He never does that just to meet his own needs. It's always for someone else. Satan tempted him, turn these stones into bread. But Jesus said no. So we need to analyze or think about what our prayers are like and consider, are we making selfish requests, things for ourselves? Or am I really interested in the needs of others and the glory of the kingdom? Now, Jesus speaking to this woman. Back in those days, a rabbi, because Jesus is a teacher, a rabbi, 
a rabbi would not even speak with his own wife out in public. So if Marissa was back in this, if we were transported back in time and Marissa was out in the street, I just I wouldn't even acknowledge her presence because she's a woman. That's that culture. All right. And this woman goes, how is it you being a Jew ask a drink from me? I think that she's impressed by how friendly Jesus was. This is probably the first time she's ever heard a kind word from a Jewish man. If you think about that, it's the first time she's, I think it's the first time she's ever heard a kind word or a kind greeting from a Jewish man. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So what is John the Apostle saying here when he says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Well, back then it was well understood, but they hated each other. The Jews cursed them and believed them to be accursed. Their most merciful wish to the Samaritans was that they might have no part in the resurrection, or in other words, they might be annihilated. Just wipe them out. Just get rid of them. That's the Jews' attitude to um, the Samaritans. Now, another question I've got is why... Doesn't Jesus say, let me draw water for you? Why does he ask the woman, draw water for me? Well, he's trying to work with her because he wants something from her. Do you know what he wants from her? Her heart. All right. He, he wants her as a person. And... Often as believers, we think, oh, what can I do for this person to find a way to, so I can share the gospel with them? But sometimes, if we allow other people to give assistance to us, then that opens the door for communication and for an opportunity to share the gospel. And in Numbers chapter 10, verses 29 to 33, there's an example of this. I'm not, I won't read. I'll just I'll just um, paraphrase it. It says uh, it, it's a guy called Hobab, and it, he's a Moses' brother-in-law. Okay, he's a son of Jethro, and Moses invites him to come along with the children of Israel back in you know to go into the promised land. And Moses, it's a great land where we're going, and good things will happen to you if you travel in our company, if you travel with us. So basically, you'll be blessed if you come with us. And Hobab says, sorry, I'm going back to my own people. And then Moses changed his tactic. He said, Hobab, we need you. You understand the wilderness. You can be our eyes. Would you please help us? And Hobab agreed and ended up in the promised land with the people of Israel. So that's in Numbers 10, 29 to 33. So I'm not talking about having unbelievers um, serving in the church, but in practical ways, like if you can't eat fixing and the person's not a believer, that's okay. You can still ask. It still opens up ways of communication so we can then, as we're talking, share the gospel. Verse 9 so a Samaritan woman, so two strikes against her. She was a woman and she was a Samaritan. And verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God 
and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So, to Nicodemus, he spoke about being born again because Nicodemus understood about being born again. That was part of his Jewish culture. It wouldn't work with this woman. She doesn't have that same culture. So Jesus speaks of living water, something that she could understand. How did Jesus talk to the blind man? He identified himself as the light of the world. To Mary and Martha, when their brother died, Lazarus died, he identified himself as the resurrection and the life. And to Peter and John and the other fishermen, he issued an invitation to become fishers of men. So Jesus' approach to people was personal. He, he met them where they were at. The woman said to him, Sir, the first time that the lady spoke to Jesus, she called him a Jew. That's like swearing at him. Okay, it's, it's like, you know, this Jew Samaritan thing is a cuss word, swear word. Now she's calling him Sir. So she's, Jesus really gone up in her eyes. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? So she's asking questions now. He's making her interested. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So the woman's thinking of, oh, there's going to be a bubbling spring next door to my house. I don't have to run and get water anymore. And because in the next verse she says, Give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So it'd be nice to have running water, wouldn't it? So we take it for granted. We don't have to walk for our water. But Jesus is speaking of the eternal spiritual realm. And people make the same mistake today. Often you hear people teaching that the kingdom of God is all about prosperity, being rich, having good health. All those types of things, health, wealth, and prosperity. But Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, because nothing material will ever satisfy the thirst of our soul. Nothing material will. When believers get thirsty, when we start to feel dry, it's because we've probably drifted back to those old watering holes. We've gone back to the things that we used to find pleasure in. And then, and we've walked away, we've moved away from the Word of God, from ministry and from the things of the kingdom, and we end up dry, as miserable as a fish out of water. <laughs> and there's one word I want to point out here. It says, whoever, whoever drinks of this water, the gospel is for everyone. It goes beyond, it's, it's, it's over culture, it's beyond culture. Same as in John 3.16, whoever. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water 
that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So as I said, she's probably thinking about a running spring that's close to town. Now Jesus is going to change tact here. He's going to address her conscience. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Now why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus pick on something in her life which is going to convict her? Because there's no true conversion without conviction that leads to repentance. If we don't know we're sinners, then why would we want to be saved? Because salvation is being saved from our sins, right? The woman answered it in verse 17 and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said. See how gracious he is here? Very gentle in his response. He could have been really hard here, but he's not. He's honest, but he's gentle. He's loving. You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one or the man that you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So thank you for being honest. This lady has opened up. She's, she's basically confessed. Why did Jesus bring up this issue that she's living with a guy? And not married to him? Well, her sinful life needs to be confronted. She needs to understand that what she's doing is wrong. Because this woman must make a choice. Is she going to live the old life? Or is she going to live a new life following Jesus? Because you can't do both. Jesus is convicting her. She's got to live one way, the old way, living in sin. Or she's got to give that up and follow Jesus. She's got to make a choice. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus gave him a choice too. Go and sell all your possessions and come follow me. And the man went away sad because he chose to love his old life more than Jesus. He refused to repent. He was convicted, but he refused to repent. And he went away sad. But this woman, I believe, repented because she went away overflowing. Okay, She went away telling people about Jesus. And here's a, a verse that talks about what repentance looks like practically. It's a, repentance is a change of heart. God gives us a new heart with new desires, and we choose to follow him. But what does it look like practically? What's the outworking of an internal change? Repentance. Ephesians four twenty-eight to 32. It says, If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Now notice the word instead, okay? It's a few times in, in these verses. Don't use foul or abusive language, and you could put in there, instead, let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow or grieve God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. And verse 32, instead, be kind to each other, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Can you see the, the change from the old life to the new life, that what God expects of us? We can't do it on our own. It's, it's by Him working in us, His Spirit strengthening us. And another good little verse here, describing how Jesus talks, but speaking the truth in love. So that's how Jesus spoke to this woman. He was demonstrating, speaking the truth in love. So Jesus, it says in John chapter 3 that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that's his grace toward us, his gift, his unmerited favor. So why does he convict this woman? Why does he talk about her sin and reveal her sin? Well, as I said before, there's no salvation without conviction and the repentance that follows. We must speak the truth. Now, notice also Jesus didn't dwell on her sin. Once she confessed her sin, that was it. Let's move on. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, it's gone from Jew, that swear word, to sir, a title of respect. Now it's prophet. So her esteem for Jesus is growing. And wouldn't you be a bit surprised if someone came and pointed out your heart, revealed your heart to you? You'd be going, wow, you, know, you must be at least a prophet. Now she has this difficult question she's going to ask Jesus, a very difficult question. And this might happen to us. If you're telling people about Jesus, guess what? Someone might ask you, did Adam have a belly button? Where did Cain get his wife? How could all the animals fit on the ark? You know, they might ask you those questions to try and put you off. And uh, what did Jesus do? He just got back on track. Now, this mountain, as I said before, this mountain is Mount Gerizim, and this is where the Samaritan temple was built. So, And our fathers is a reference, as I told you before, about Abraham and Jacob and all those dealings that, they, that God had with them there in the past. And you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So she's kind of starting this debate up. Nah, I'm right, you're wrong, and you know we should worship here, not over there. And Jesus just cuts through all that, and he says, Woman, believe me. Like that, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. And Jesus is talking about the Father, the Heavenly Father. He says, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is on the Jews. So that phrase, you worship what you do not know. The Samaritans believe that Moses commissioned an altar on Mount Gerizim, the mountain of blessing. And that's why they justified their worship on Mount Gerizim. That's why they changed everything to refer to Mount Gerizim. <laughs> they worship what they do not know. And to me, this is a bit like today's ecumenical movement that's when oh, everybody gets together and pulls their ideas and nobody's wrong and everybody's right 
And for me, it's just when you put a bit of everything, you end up with a whole lot of nothing. Does that make sense? You get it. But everyone puts their bits in, and um, all the different beliefs and all the different um, ideas, and you end up with a whole lot of nothing because you've moved away from the Bible. We've moved away from the truth. We must not compromise like so many church leaders are today. We need to hold on to the truth, stand for the truth, and fight for the truth. Why? Because it's the truth that sets people free. Now, why is the, why does it say salvation is of the Jews? Well, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Jesus came from the nation of Israel, and salvation is through him. Genesis 26 verse 4, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, that's Jesus, all the nation of the earth shall be blessed. So that's why that's what it means when it's salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I've got a quote here from a, a guy called John Corson. He says um, about worship in spirit and truth. When I was growing up, he says, people basically had to choose between worshipping the Lord in spirit and worshipping the Lord in truth. If they wanted to worship the Lord in spirit, they would go to churches where they would hear statements like, wow, wasn't that a great service? The spirit was moving so powerfully, the preacher didn't even have time to give a message. (laughs) All right. If they wanted to worship the Lord in truth, they would go to churches that seemed to believe that the Trinity consisted of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible, churches where there was no room for the Spirit to work spontaneously or for the gifts to be exercised together. So we need, it's not either or, it's both, Spirit and truth. There's an understanding that God must be worshipped in Spirit and truth. Jesus said in John 6, 30, 63, the words I speak are Spirit and and life. As we take in the word, we grow in the spirit. Verse 23, second part. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Did you realize that the Father is seeking people to worship him? God is looking for us. He wants us to be worshipers. And when we worship him, we find joy. That's when we find our satisfaction, our contentment when we're worshiping him. That's why we were made. God is, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Another uh, way of looking at this spirit and truth, uh, a different perspective, is to worship in spirit means you are concerned with spiritual realities, not so much with places or outward sacrifices, cleansing, atmosphere, or trappings, you know, things around the room. Uh, to worship in truth means you worship according to the whole counsel of God's word including the New Testament revelation. Okay, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So now Jesus has turned this conversation to talking about the Messiah 
And then she says, well, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am. It doesn't say he in the original. So you could say, I who speak to you am. So I am. So very clearly, Jesus is telling this lady, I am the Messiah. This is the the climax of this conversation with her. Just to summarize this conversation, first, he establishes contact with the Samaritan. He talks to her. Then he stimulates curiosity by saying, you'll come to draw water. You're thirsty. Now let me tell you about the living water that I have for you. And finally, he keeps focused. She wants to get off into all these different arguments and discussions, but he brings the conversation back again, saying that Jerusalem and Gerizim are not the issue, and that her fathers, the patriarchs, are not the point, and he brings the conversation back to himself. So as we witness, we need to keep the conversation focused on Jesus. And then the disciples come back. I think we'll stop here, but... I just want to finish with a quote. And if we just go to um, John chapter 4, verse 13. So in the same chapter, just reread verses 13 and 14 to finish. It says, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And here's a quote from Chuck Smith. It says, Thirst again, an extremely profound statement. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And this statement should be written over every ambition that you have, everything that you want to do. That is, that is for yourself. What is it that you are hoping to attain in life? What is it that you think will bring you satisfaction and fulfillment? What goals are you pressing toward? What possessions are you striving to acquire? Whatever it is, right over the top of it, drink of this water, but you will thirst again. There is nothing in the material realm that will satisfy our spiritual thirst. The water Jesus wants to give us is the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of a restored love relationship with him. This is what we were created for. We were dead in our sins, but now we are alive in Christ. The evidence of that is the Holy Spirit in us. And we have been reconnected with God. We were separated because of Adam's sin. Because of Jesus, we're reconnected. So live life to the full. Get rid of all those things that slow us down, the sin that ensnares us, and look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this um, fantastic passage of Scripture where Jesus uh, brings this woman who has no idea about truth, no idea about who the Messiah is, and then he reveals himself um, to be, to her, to be the Messiah. And next week we'll we'll go and we'll see her response, how excited she is, and and, um, the effect of her conversion on those around her. And I just pray that we can be like the woman who's been saved, we can be so grateful, we can be so excited about what you have done for us that we go and we tell other people about you. 
just like that woman does in the, in the next few verses. I just pray that you'll yeah, put that in us, Lord. Give us um, that renewed first love, that, that excitement that we have when we were first saved, that we can just can't hold back what you've done for us. We can't help but tell other people about your love and about that you are the Messiah, that you are the way to salvation, that you are the, the, the um, deliverance from death. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.